go ahead and just start off as TC continues to get ready here. Um, a little housekeeping again for this class. Uh, if I had to pick a theme for the next uh, two months or so, it's, it's sort of in the beginning. Uh, T.C. Ham is with us uh, to, to talk to us and teach from the book of Genesis. And again, I, I gave this warning a week or so ago. I'd like to do it again. He's entitled this talk, As It Was Written, the text as it was written, and we don't want to get into a lot of the side issues like evolution, etc. If you've studied with T.C. before, you know that he is a master of the text of our Holy Word, and, and we'll, we'll keep the topic to that. The other beginnings will come from Michael Wallace, and he's going to do a pre-Christmas, two, the two weeks preceding Christmas, uh, and the beginnings there will be the beginnings with Jesus, and he'll explore the nativity with us and compare the Gospels. So for the next six weeks or so, we're going to look at our beginnings, and uh, we, we hope that you will all stay engaged and study with us and that it be meaningful to you. Also on the same theme, because of the way the holiday falls, the last two weeks of December, there will be no Westminster class. And uh, we have plans for the rest of the year, I'll, but I won't get too involved at this time. So please stay with us and, and uh, be enlightened and enriched as we go forward. As we do that, let's open in prayer. Father God, this has certainly been an amazing week, a week of uh, politics and and personal reflection in our lives about what our future holds and um, we wonder when this peaceful kingdom will come and our prayer today our sermon today and in our worship is about that same thing and certainly we pray for our nation we, we give thanks for the freedom we enjoy through our veterans and we look now personally into our own peace I was enlightened this week preparing, knowing that T.C. would be here to teach, and we ask again for your blessing on, and Holy Spirit with him. But to know that the first opening line, in the beginning, God, I can't think of a better way to heal us than to go back to this thought. In the beginning, it was you. And we are yours, this world is yours, our leaders are yours, Somehow, even, Lord, our wars are yours. And for that, we give you thanks, and we praise you and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good to be here again. Thank you for having me. Uh, <clears throat> so, words have meaning in a given context, right? So, uh, I was born in Korea, South Korea, and I was raised there until I was 12, so English is really my second language. Um, so uh, I started to figure out that English, well, at the time, because you know, when you learn your own language, you grow up speaking it, you don't really think about the words. But then you think about a foreign language or a second language, and you realize that words in and of themselves don't have as much meaning as we think. That words actually mean something only in context. So for example, um, the word see, which word did I just say, first of all, in English? You don't even know what see that I just said. Is it S-E-A, S-E-E? Uh, let's just see, S-E-E, what does that mean? If, I, if, if you and I were talking and I say, I see what you mean, what am I saying? I understand. I understand. Do you see that window? 
means completely different things. Uh, in fact, the Holy See now means something completely different. Uh, so words mean things. Now, phrases, you put a bunch of words together. They really mean things in a given context, right? We just went through a very uh, interesting time this week, this past week. So today, if I say something like, well, I'm, I'm with her, now you know, oh, nice, or, oh, we've got to make America great again. Those phrases now mean things in the given context. So words and phrases mean, mean things specifically sometimes uh, in a given context, like, for, like political phrases, or they, they catch on, right? So uh, I was thinking about Genesis. <coughs> By the way, I teach a course in which we go through Genesis 1 in about four weeks of meeting three times a week. So uh, that's how rich this, this chapter really is, just as Genesis 1 alone. Uh, so to, to be begin to talk about Genesis in, in our context would be very difficult to cover in any great depth. Now, having said that, there's still so much to talk about that, that we will unearth from the, given, the Hebrew text that, that Genesis is written in. Uh, but I wanted to, to, to tell you this. The context of Genesis is Canaanite mythology. And you think, what is that? Uh, most of you know stories about Canaanite mythology, like Baal or Baal, uh, when Elijah and the, the priests of Baal or Baal have a contest. You hear about the, the kind of a hint of what Baalism would have looked like, because when Baal doesn't answer, they start cutting themselves. And you realize, whoa, that is a strange religion that the priests are doing this. Uh, partly because the, the Hebrew uh, priests or Hebrew people in general are, to, are told, never do that, right? Don't cut yourself, don't mutilate yourself, don't hurt your bodies. And yet Canaanite mythology, Canaanite religion had that in, built into their practice. Again, uh, so Israelites are going to be in Canaan when Moses writes this book, or whoever wrote this book, there's, there's, they're certainly addressing the people in the land of, of Israel, and they are going to be uh, attracted to this strange new religion that they are learning about, they call Canaanite religion, or Baalism. Now, Baalism, uh, I don't want to get into all the details of it, but it's a very violent religion. It, it, and in fact, there are many, many gods. There's a whole pantheon of gods. And they kill each other, and, and they fight, and there's all kinds of chaos and violence. That is the context in which Genesis occurs. In the beginning, God. Not a bunch of gods, one God. Now, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll show you some of the uh, polemic, an argument that's, you know how you can make an argument that's outright an argument, and I can argue against you, and you can fight and debate. And there are subtle polemics sometimes you use in language that says, you know that idea that you have? That's kind of stupid, and I'm going to say it this way. And, and, and there's a subtle polemic happening in Genesis 1 that I'd like to, to bring to light. So keep that context in mind, because we tend to read Genesis as if it's written directly to us. And in a sense, it is. The theological truth that we unearth uh, certainly applies to us. But it was written to a specific people at a very spe specific time in a specific language, which happens to be Hebrew. 
So uh, we're going to read Genesis 1 and just kind of work our way through today, through hopefully <laughs> at least the first five days of Genesis 1, uh, and, and see if we can unearth some of these things I'm talking about. Uh, before we get to that, though, uh, last few times I've been here, I've taught you some Hebrew, and so I, I want to keep that tradition alive. So uh, here's some words that I think uh, that we, we could use for, for the next four weeks. And the word separate is badal, and that will occur over and over in Genesis 1. The other word that you'll see over and over is mean or kind, each according to its kind kind of kind, not kindness kind. <laughs> Speaking of words in context, the word kind can mean type or compassionate, very different things, right? So I mean this as a category of kind. Uh, and haya to be. How do you pronounce that? Oh, I'm sorry, mean, mean. So badal, mean, haya, haya, ha, ha. It's kind of a stronger H than an English H, but pretty close, haya. Haya means to be. Oh, I should note. Uh, the English to be has become weakened over uh, many, many years of use uh, as a copula. A copula, <laughs> you're thinking, oh, grammar school. Uh, it's, it's throwing you back to elementary school. Copulative verbs or linking verbs or hel you know, helping verbs, those kinds of weak verbs because we say things like he is tall, she is smart. The word there doesn't do anything. The is isn't doing anything except to say I'm linking this one to that word. There's no verb there. So it's a very weak verb. Uh, Hebrew will never use the word haya as a copula. It'll just say, she tall, he smart. <laughs> Makes sense, right? Uh, so this to be is the to be of Shakespeare. To be or not to be. Do I exist or do I not exist? What should I do? Uh, so that's a very strong word. It occurs something like 27 times in chapter 1, and you think, well, the to be verb is common. Yes, it is, to a point. Uh, for example, I think in chapter three and, and 2 and 3 and 4 and following, it occurs no more than five times in each chapter. So 27 is remarkable how often this word occurs, haya, to be. And the last word uh, is the word good, it means tov. It's tov. Tov, you might have heard that phrase as mazel tov. Uh, best wishes or good luck or something like that. Mazel tov. Tov is good. Uh, oh, I could, I could greet you this morning. Boker tov. Boker is morning. So boker tov is good morning. Boker tov. So now you know some Hebrew. Uh, we're going to touch upon some of these words, and they're, they're up there for a reason. These are very significant words uh, in Genesis 1 especially. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Genesis 1. Often in my teaching, uh, I have all kinds of students and students who come without any knowledge of the Bible, so sometimes I have to help them find it. Genesis, it's easy to find. It's the first book of the, of, of the Bible. Although they struggle sometimes to find Matthew because you have to know kind of where the, it begins, right? Uh, okay, so. You all with me? Okay, so. In the beginning, God created bara, the heavens and the earth. Now, there, the word bara there in the, the Hebrew word kara, bara, create, that word only occurs with God as the subject. Think about that. There's a word in the Bible, a verb, whose subject is only God. 
So you and I can do all kinds of other things like asa, malach, we can work, we can toil, we can even uh, make things, but we cannot bara. Bara is create. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, there's debate about this, whether then the next verse continues uh, as, a, as a story, then what happened? So in the beginning, God created heavens and earth, and then something else happened, or if verse one represents an introduction for the whole chapter, ending in um, chapter two, verse three, kind of as a summative statement. And Hebrew likes to do this. Hebrew likes to say things like, and then Ruth went and did everything according to what her mother-in-law told her to do, and then it tells you what she did, one by one. Uh, and so the reason that's debated is because if we assume that chapter, uh, chapter one, verse one, is the first thing God did, then it gets confusing when God actually creates the heavens and creates the earth, like, did he do it again? Um, is, is God doing it a second time in, in, in later verses? Uh, for example, in, in, in verse nine and 10, uh, God creates the land, the Eretz, the earth. So is that a different kind of verse? So most scholars take that first verse as a summative, as a summary introduction of the rest of that chapter. And I think that's a fair assessment because these words, uh, the heavens and the earth, uh, Shemayim and Eretz have not yet been identified. And, and as you read, we'll get to that when, when God calls them these things. Um, I hate to get too technical, but there's a, there's a really cool word uh, in literary studies called merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. Merism is using two extremes to talk about everything in between, everything. So when, when the Bible uh, uses words like, phrases like young and old, well, it includes middle-aged people too, so I'm not excluded from that. So young and old includes every, everybody in between, great and small. Uh, east and west, everything in between. So heaven and earth is actually a merism. So that's why everything in between, heaven and earth and everything in between, including, that's including animals and everything else that God will create. So I think that's why it's a, it's a sum, summary introduction of the rest. Uh, let's move to verse two then. Now, the earth. Strange, the earth hasn't yet been created, but it's gonna say what the earth was. Uh, now the earth was Hayah. There we go. This is not a, a description of what the earth is. It's a, it's a strong to be verb. The earth existed. Now the earth existed as tohu vavohu, empty and chaotic, formless and void. Um, so what are other translations of that? Empty. What you, empty and void. Uh, it's a phrase that often occurs um, to describe a chaotic and like empty vast lands of wasteland or things that are not orderly. So now the earth was tohu vavohu, empty and formless, uh, without order is the essence of that phrase. That phrase, I said now the earth, 
Uh, Hebrew can have disjunctives. Disjunctive is the opposite of conjunction. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? There's, we don't have a song for, we don't have a song for disjunction, junction, what's your function? Uh, I don't know why we don't teach our kids what disjunctions are. We teach them what conjunctions are, we don't teach them disjunctions. Disjunction is the contrast to the conjunction, and it begins, verse two begins with a disjunction. Now, stop, pause, the earth. Let's talk about the earth, that's what it is. Question? We don't know, the text doesn't say. It just jumps right in. Now, it'll tell you though how God did this, right? how the earth and uh, the land and everything will come to be as we move forward, but it just jumps right in, now the earth. So, go ahead. So is it possible then that, that God created the heavens and the earth, kind of just you know, threw the raw material out there yeah. in the first sentence, mm -hmm. and then started manipulating and creating the raw it's, it is possible, so you're pointing out the other side. Like I said, there was a de there's debate about verse one and how it's functioning. If it is the first act of God, then verse two would say then how God continued that act of creating the heavens and the earth. So it is a possible interpretation. It is among most biblical scholars a minority view just because there's a strong disjunction in verse two. So verse two begins a new kind of now. So I think King James uses that word now or uh, and it does really? Okay. Um, the disjunction there is something like this. Um, it is not a contrastive disjunction. So a contrastive would say, but. It's not a but. It's a pause. Now the earth, because Hebrew likes to begin with verbs. So you know how in English we have to have the subject first typically? So subject, verb, object, <laughs> again, grammar, right? You're going back to elementary school. Subject, verb, object is our normal word order. So you say, I love you. But then if you flip it around, me, you love, uh, the, because me is objective, it's, an, it's not I, it's me, me, you love, it still kind of makes sense. You're the one doing the loving, but the focus is me, me, you love, not anybody else. Uh, love, you, me, now the focus is love not hate or some other word. So English can do it to an extent. Hebrew loves to mess with word order because they can, they can put it in any word order they want because objects are marked and subjects are marked and verbs are marked. So you can put it however you want and they know exactly what the subject is and the object is. So here it begins with uh, uh, the subject instead of the verb, which it likes to do. The haya, the to be verb, follows. So it's, it's a disjunction. Um, so however we interpret that, it's, it's kind of beginning a new sentence. So the earth was formless and void and now darkness, again, darkness precedes the verb, darkness uh, over the face of the deep. And Ruach Elohim, oh man, there's a hard phrase to translate. Here's why, Ruach Elohim, Elohim is God. We should probably learn that one too, uh, if you haven't learned that one yet, Elohim, God. So Ruach is a word that, uh, is often translated as spirit, um, but often, other times, it's translated as wind or breath. And in our English categories of thought, like, well, how are those three things related to each other? But in the Hebrew mind, they all relate. Here's how they all relate. All right, take a deep breath and blow it out. What did you just create? Wind. If you stop breathing, that's a, that's a bad thing, right, doctor? <laughs> if you stop breathing, that's a bad thing. So it, it's the life 
thing that we're doing. Breathing in and out is life. So the word spirit applies to that. So breath, wind, and spirit are all really one idea in the Hebrew mind, so that's why they have one word, ruach. So some translations will go and say the wind of God, the breath of God. Other translations will say the spirit of God. And that's a challenge because we don't have a context at this point. Uh, this is only the second verse, so there's no context to talk about which one is this. So any, your guess is as good as mine. So is it the spirit of God or is it just the wind blowing over this surface? Although if God went, <laughs> that would be everything, right? It would be like the spirit, breath, and wind. Um, over the, uh, the, so it was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, we can talk about water later. All right, okay, all right let's move to verse three. The, every day of Genesis one begins with the phrase, and God said, and then God said, so all the verses uh, that begin with, uh, not, I'm sorry, there are some occurrences of God said outside the beginning of a day, but every beginning of a new day begins with this phrase, and God said. And God said, Yehi, from Hayah, Yehi, or light. Let light be. Let there be light is the typical translation of that. But let light be, and light bead. So the, hear this in, in Hebrew, the, the, the sound play of this. Yehi-or, vehi-or. Or is light. Yehi-or, vehi-or. You can hear the immediate response of the light. Light be, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm here. So light be, light existed. So that's the word to be. Light, let light exist, and light existed. This phrase, by the way, is a powerful phrase. Uh, it's called the fiat lux, fiat lux, command for light. And it is such a well-known phrase in the Hebrew mind, and for us, too, that if you want to say something powerful, you can use this. For example, in Job, uh, I don't have a reference, I think it's verse 4 of chapter 3. Uh, Job chapter 3 is the beginning of Job just lamenting his pain. And it is a beautiful poem of pain. Uh, and yet... Uh, this is how he begins about the curse, curse of the day that he was conceived. He goes, on that day. He's, he's, he, in it, because there's a movement in that song. He wants to not be conceived. If he wants to be conceived, if he has to be conceived, he wants to be born dead. If he is born alive, he wants nobody to nurse him so he'll die early. It just gets dark and dark and, and it's because he just doesn't want to exist. And can you imagine if you're Job, you've lost your, all your children are dead. You're in absolute agony physically. And so he's writing this beautiful poem. And he says, let there be darkness. Let there be darkness. So that yehi, this, this verb is you. Yehi, choshek. And that's the thing that existed before, right? So darkness hovered over the face of the deep. Let there be light. And Job says, no. That night that I was conceived, let there be darkness. So it is such a powerful phrase in the, in the authors and the, the Hebrew people. They can just use it uh, whenever they uh, want to refer to something powerful as well. Um, verse 4. And God called the light 
I'm sorry, God uh, saw the light. Uh, you have to wait for the, all right. So God saw the light uh, and th- that it was good. He separated badal. See the word separate badal? You know what I'll do? I'll write kind of an English transliteration of these sounds so you can kind of see what they look like. Hmm, how do I do this? <laughs> All right. Uh, verbs usually follow in the second syllable. Um, verbs usually go like badal. This is the accent here. They're all long verbs, uh, but the accent goes on the second syllable. So God separated. So after God creates this light, God separates it from darkness. Now, my physicist friends will tell me that you can't do that. (laughs) Uh, Light exists, sure, but darkness is the essence of light. So you can't literally separate light and darkness. And I have to remind my physicist friends, you're being way too literal on this. Uh, And so I had one friend who was actually having a crisis of faith. He's a scientist. And um, he, he appealed to things like this. And he said, I can't believe in the Bible that believes this. And I said, the Bible doesn't believe that. Uh, first of all, there is light here before there's anything that can produce light. The sun hasn't yet been created. So light exists as a metaphor for God, as, a, as, as, as opposing darkness, evil. And so uh, I had to remind him that he was being way too literal on this. Um, and later on, uh, th- there's another light that causes, caused him problem. He said, the greater light and the lesser light, we'll talk about that. The lesser light is which object? The moon. The moon. Is the moon a light? No. no, it's a reflection. So he had problems with that too. He's like, moon's not a light. It doesn't create light at all. So again, he was being very literal. Um, but he was raised that way. He was told that every, bi- every Bible verse must be read literally, otherwise you're not a very good Christian. <laughs> and so he was raised that way. And so when he started to think about these things, these things scientifically, as a scientist, when he, uh, then he had trouble. So let's remember, you can't literally separate darkness from light. But what God is doing is, uh, is creating a sense of time uh, and space. And uh, verse 5. And God called to the light. I know many of your versions will just say God called the light, but there is a preposition there in Hebrew, la, to. God called to the light, day. And to the darkness, uh, he called night. Day and night. Uh, For us, day and night are separate, aren't they? I mean, we know there are kind of gradual changes between them. Uh, Day and night are separated. Again, how do we experience day and night? time. So there are scholars who talk about this is how the uh, Israelites would have conceived of time. Passage of time is day and night. And this phrase is immediately followed by then, there was, there existed, haya, that strong to be verb. There existed evening, there existed morning, day one, first day. So it's the end of the first day that begin, began with God said. Uh, t- 
to, to refer back to the word there, kara, to, to call out, to cry out to something, um, there is a sense that God is naming it. But the, the Hebrew idiom for name, naming something, would use a word called shame. Shame uh, it means word. Uh, uh, the word means name. And uh, that word doesn't exist here. So God is calling it something, but it, God is also calling to it as if speaking directly to it, but not in a personal way. So I can talk to this marker. <laughs> Red marker. So that's what God is doing. God is calling things out to, as if uh, God is speaking to it. So verse 6. Are we at 6? Yes. So that's day one. Any questions on day one? Good. All right. Day two. Day two begins. Uh, sorry. Uh, and God said, let there be a, ooh, that is a hard word to translate. Uh, expanse is most of your translations, right? Firmament. Uh, sorry? A vault. Hmm. A dome. Do you see the whole range of translations there? The word is rakia, rakia. Uh, okay, l- let me read the rest of that, and then we'll go back to that word. And God said, let there be a rakia in the midst of the waters, and let it be a separating thing between water t- from water. So God wants to, again, separate, badal. Let, let it be a separating thing between water from water. So in English, we would say from water to water. But Hebrew uses the word between there. Um, rakia comes from the word raka, which means to beat like a piece of metal to a sheet. So imagine if you t- if you had copper or something and you wanted to make a sh- uh, uh, you know, sheet of metal, you beat it with a hammer until it flattens out, and that flattened thing is this thing. So we look at the heavens and they they thought oh. That must be like a surface that God beat out with a hammer. That's the imagery that the, the author is using. It's not a fluid thing. It's a firm thing. That's the translation, firmament. So vault, dome, what they're trying to render in English is something that's very difficult to do. It's a sheet of metal, a dome-shaped metal. That's how they conceived of the heavens. Now, uh, as, as Dan mentioned, I don't want to get into uh, issues of creationism versus evolution and those kinds of ideas, but at least the way they conceived of the heavens is not gas or, I don't know what, uh, atmosphere. They conceived that as a dome. That's their worldview. That's their cosmology. You know, I can't just let that pass. <laughs> All right. All right. I have to talk about this. There's a, there's a, there's a phrase, uh, accommodated theology or accommodation theology. And this is what this is. Uh, my students often ask me this. So Jesus knew everything, right? And I've talked about this before, I think, in, in one of our courses before in the classes that I've taught here. When Jesus says the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, but when it's planted, it becomes a big tree and birds can nest in it. And my zoology and wildlife students and biology students, and they said, no, 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 the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. In fact, it's not even close. And they have a problem with that verse. And I said, yeah, you, you tell that to a Jewish person during Jesus' time. They'll call you crazy. <laughs> it is the smallest of all seeds, as far as, as far as they're concerned. So let's say Jesus invoked uh, his divinity and, 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 and pulled in a piece of knowledge that 
none of us have, in fact, because we can only find one smaller, then we were wrong than the last time, right? Let's say Jesus was able to find the smallest seed, and then let's say it's the African orchid seed, because that's the smallest one I know. And Jesus says to the Israelites in his parable, this African orchid seed is the smallest of all seeds, but it's not that big of a tree. It'll never, uh, so let me go to the mustard seed then. So what Jesus is accommodating is their knowledge of the, the world to teach truth. And the truth is re- revealed in the whole of that parable. That whole parable says that the kingdom of God is, it begins small. And Jesus uses the mustard seed a lot, referring to our faith, about the kingdom of God, and it expands to something. And, and if you've ever seen a mustard seed, it really is very, very tiny. Uh, I sometimes buy these little bottles of mustard that has mustard seeds in it, and you can't, you can't see it. You gotta look real close. Uh, so it is very, very small. So the whole t- parable has the truth. And so as since these are usually biology or zoology or wildlife, one of those students, I, I often say, have you ever f- said things like this to somebody? My, boyf- my boyfriend is a dog. I, I, I use this because I had a student actually said it to me once. And, and uh, <laughs> she, came, she came to me and said, my boyfriend's a dog. And I, and, and I was trying to lighten her mood. So I said, oh, he's got a fuzzy like, uh, hair. You pet him. <laughs> Does he have a wet nose? Uh, wet nose is healthy, apparently, right? Uh, so, does he have a tail? Is he really, really hairy all over? So, and then, so she thought that was funny. But the point that I was getting, getting at was when we use metaphors, or when, when we even refer to people as dogs, what we mean by that phrase is that there's, there's something else going on than the details of a dog. And so, a parable, the details of a parable really are irrelevant. It's the whole parable that makes a difference. This accommodative theology then, um, it, it includes what the author, uh, the author assumes that the audience knows, but expands it. So uh, truth is like that. Um, psychologists talk about the psychology of learning. Uh, it's almost impossible to learn something in a vacuum. We learn it on top of things we've learned before or in comparison to things we've learned before. And so that's what accommodative theology does. And whoever wrote Genesis 1 is accommodating the cosmology of the audience but is expanding it and saying, God did this. It's the who that's important and it's the why that's important. And then the whole creationist, and then you know, the argument usually focus on the how. The Bible doesn't say. And this is why I, I can ignore that question as a biblical scholar. If you want to know how, then you can ask scientists and philosophers and other people. As biblical scholars, I can just go, the Bible says. <laughs> and, then, and then move forward. All right, so uh, there's a little rabbit trail for you. What verse are we in? Are we beginning six? Okay. And God said, uh, let there be a dome in this. Oh, we just did that. Okay. Uh, so God separates the waters. Since I talked about the accommodation, uh, can you all see this part, bottom part of them? All right. I'm going to draw it so that you can see it. If the dome has been created, what's holding that dome up? There's something here already. And uh, so far, dry land has not appeared. So there's water up here. God, God created that dome to separate the waters. 
So there's water here and water here. We'll fill this picture in as we move forward, okay? That's the accommodated cosmology that Genesis 1 includes. Okay, so verse uh, 7. Then God made this firmament, dome, uh, rakia, and God separated the waters, which was below this thing, rakia, and that was... um, above the thing. Well, it says literally from upon it. So literally like standing on something, but the water is above and there's water below. And this rakia separates the two. And it was so. The word that begins this verse, and God made, asa made, uh, it's kind of strange because God just said, let there be. Light just came to be. Let there be light. Okay. Let there be rakia, and then God makes it. God did something, whatever that means. So the, the ancient writers and the, maybe even the audience assume that God was actively involved just from the, right from the beginning in some sense that God made this thing. God called this rakia, this firmament, this dome, this uh, vault, this expanse, if you want to call it that. Shamayam, heavens. So this is where the word that, that Genesis 1.1 introduced, God created the heavens and the earth. Now this thing is called this, the heavens. There existed evening, existed morning, the second day. Yes. So the sense here then is God called this firmament into being. Mm-hmm. And then he did something with it. Uh, God, basically, it's like, let there be a loud noise right now. <laughs> I called it and I did it. So God says, let there be this dome. All right, I'm going to make it. it. It couldn't be the sense that he called it into existence and then manipulated it to make it and form it into something. Asa doesn't have that sense. Uh, later on in chapter 2, uh, Yatsar, the, the shaping and forming idea of, of from the ground uh, ma- making us, that's that shaping idea. Asa is literally mean doing or making. Uh, and, and we don't know how. Again, the how is not the point of this author. Doesn't care. Whoever wrote this doesn't care about the how. Keeps, ca- keeps talking about Elohim, 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 Elohim. The word God occurs so often that you think, we get it, it's God. Can you use a pronoun already? <laughs> he, it would be fine, just so use a pronoun. No, Elohim, 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 Elohim. God, God, God. God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and God did this. The point is, it is God, and then chapter two will introduce that God's name, Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh God, <coughs> Yahweh God, Yahweh God the Lord God in English. Um, so we don't know who this God is yet. There's a God. God did this. In chapter two, it says, this God, that's our God, Yahweh. God did all this. Our God did all this. Uh, some of you were in, in, in my class when I taught Jonah. Do you remember when Jonah and the sailors are talking and the sailors are asking, when they discover that it was Jonah's fault, that they're experiencing this uh, great storm upon this great sea because this great wind is happening and they keep asking him questions. Where are you from? What do you do? What, which people are you from? And there's a whole sequence of questions that they ask and Jonah says, Ibri I am. Hebrew I am. 
Again, disjunctive there. He introduces himself with a, not I am Hebrew, but Hebrew. I am. And, uh, and then he describes the God that he worships. And he says, God who made the heavens, this thing right here, the ocean, the yam, and that thing over there that we want to desperately get to, the dry land. And then the men, the sailors, freak out. <laughs> that God is angry? Because remember, the sailors, the pagans, they all had their own gods. And, you know, they didn't all believe that their particular God created anything at all. Especially if you're Canaanite, you don't believe that Baal created the world. No, Baal fought in the world and died one time. But, um, so, that's why the sailors really, really are panicking in that story. Because it says, yeah, my God, his name's Yahweh. And they might have heard of Yahweh. Oh, you're the Israelite. That's the Israelite God. We have a different God. We have a bunch of different gods. But your God is Yahweh? Okay, what did this Yahweh do? God made everything. Including the important parts that we have to be concerned about as sailors in the ocean where we were about to drown. <laughs> Dry land. Right? So that was uh, a reference back to Genesis, Genesis 1. Okay. Uh, verse 8. Uh, I can read Hebrew. I can't scan Hebrew. It's a, a whole other skill to be able to scan things. And uh, so verse 8, thank you. God called uh, the Shemaim, and, and there was evening, there was night, uh, and, and the second day. Uh, so beginning of the third day, again, God said, and then God said, let the water gather from below this heavens, Hashemayim, to one place, and let it show or reveal or appear the dry land. And it was so. Okay, so now I have to change this picture. God said, all the water that's below this Shemayim, let it gather in one place. So, it does. Water is gathered in one place. And... Then let dry ground appear. So uh, this thing sea and land. We'll have to keep modifying that picture. Yes. Right, but, but God's spirit was hovering over the face of the water in, in verse two, right? So the water was there. Water's mentioned already. So again, we don't know how the water got there. How? And so the, the question you, that you were asking earlier, uh, so there's a theology of creation called ex nihilo, out of nothing. Out of nothing, God created everything. And I actually believe that. Uh, that's part of my core theology of creation, but you can't defend that from Genesis 1. Everything. As if, you, yeah, if you take verse 1 as God created everything, then yeah, you could, you could take it that way. Uh, but there are lots of grammatical problems for taking it that way, and that's why it's a minority view among scholars, linguistic scholars especially biblical scholars who study Hebrew. Um, 
Because it, it's at this moment God actually says, here in, in this third day, uh, the dry land is called Eretz, our land, earth. Uh, so, if in verse 10, in 9 and 10 really, but verse 10 is when earth and land is, is if you want to talk about the events, uh, which you can picture the events of this description. I mean, we are, any description of an event you can picture. Uh, but if you're, so if you're picturing the events that are happening, this is the moment that earth was created, or at least created to the point that it can, could be called earth. The Hebrew people do not, did not have an understanding of the earth as a planet. They thought of ground, land as earth. The stuff below the ocean, by the way, they did not consider earth. They did not ever call that part. Uh, anything below water was not Eretz, land. Land is something you can stand on, dry. That part is Yam, the sea. So they did not see this contiguity of, of this piece of land going all the way down there. This, this, separate, this is separated in their mind. So that, that separation would, would suggest then what they conceived of at least was in this point, land appears because the water's gathered in one spot, one place. Okay. Uh, verse uh, 10, it, it says something like this. Um, well, actually, let's read it. So, God called to, again, God called to, this dry land, Hayabasha, Eretz, land, or earth, or ground, uh, not necessarily ground, but ground in our, in our um, colloquial use of ground, it, it means something different than land. Land is the closest equivalent to this Hebrew word, Eretz. Um, the land that God promised Abraham is this word, Eretz. And the gathered water he called uh, seas, the oceans. And God saw that it was good. Here, here we have it. Uh, this word tov, the word good, God saw that it was good. And this word good, um, English word good is actually a very good equivalent of this word. Because English, in English, we can call anything good. You can call a person good. But when you call a person good, it usually means, refers to someone's character, doesn't it? He's a good person. She's a good person usually doesn't have anything to do with their appearance or their age or their nothing, just good. Uh, you can call a meal a good meal. It has nothing to do with moral qualities of a meal. <laughs> you can have a good meal that's really bad for you, <laughs> right? So then it's a good, bad meal. Uh, so this, the word good encompasses everything that the English word good encompasses. And so whatever God saw, it was good. And, and too much is made out of this, this word often in the, by theologians. Well, it must mean it's morally good since moral evil comes in chapter three. I don't know about that. I don't know if there's any morality introduced by that word. 
and, and, uh, and God says, and God said, let the earth sprout, sprouting things. <laughs> uh, the word there is uh, deshe or dasha, which means to sprout, and then deshe is a thing that's sprouted. So let the earth do this thing, sprouting of green, sprouting things. Uh, which bears seeds. And, and actually it says seeding seeds. So it uses the same word twice, seeding seeds. And trees that bear fruit, that make fruit. Or, tr- or fruit-bearing trees that make fruit or bear fruit. Lamino. That's the word mean there. According to its kind. Uh, that has seeds in it upon the land, upon the earth. Uh, and it was so. So here we have a, uh, a verse that seems to suggest that God is now speaking to the, to the earth. That's, been, that's just, just come. And instead of saying, let there be light, he says, let that thing, earth, sprout forth vegetation. And it was so. That's what the earth does. God doesn't talk to the, the herbs or the plants to be. God talks to the earth, and the earth obeys. Uh, we're, in verse, we're starting verse 12, so don't let me forget that. All right, so <laughs> these two words are really closely related, separate and kind, because when do you ever separate things? Uh, when I separate laundry, I separate the dark and the light. <laughs> Sorry, I, had to, I couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> dark and the light, I also separate reds. I learned that in college. <laughs> <laughs> you separate the reds because uh, you don't ever want to mix that with whites and you get all kinds of pink stuff. And uh, I had a bunch of pink underwear when I was in college because I didn't know uh, when I did my first laundry. Why do you, and when else do you separate things? Into their own specific yeah. Kind. Hmm? When you want to work, work with it. That's good. I like that. When you want to do something with it. Uh, in fact, last time I separated something were my books. In, uh, my, in my school office has five bookshelves of books that I've acquired over the last 30 years. And uh, most of it is biblical scholarship and some, theolo- some theological stuff, some philosophy, and lots of literary things. Um, but last time I really worked hard to separate things were my books. So I took all of my theology and put it in one area, all of my biblical scholarship and put it in one spot, and all of the commentaries and put them in one spot, and all the miscellaneous other things like literature, and I use lots of literature to teach. So I have like books, works from Hamlet and Keats, and uh, so I keep that in one spot. And then within that, I started separating A's from B's, <laughs> right? And then I separate the ABs from ACs. What do we call that? Alphabetizing, Alphabetizing which is a form of separating. I f- first separated by their kind, uh, kinds of books, and then I separated them within their kinds, because there are also different kinds of books within there, even by author. It's a kind of marker. So the word kind and separate often go together. And so once I was done with all of my books, and they're all in their right place, each according to its kind. And uh, they're all sitting there, and I looked, and I felt really happy. Because I have strong OCD tendencies. <laughs> and this thing made me really, really happy. Why did it make me happy? 
It was good. <laughs> In my mind, it was good. <laughs> uh, for some of you, you don't care. My wife puts books anywhere. She'll, re- she'll pull books out of my library and she'll just put them anywhere. And I can't ever find them again. So when you want to use something, when you want to do something with it, then it becomes really, really hard. I need to find that book. Um, we separate our tools, right? Our, I, my cutler drawer, knives, forks, and everything's all separate nice and neatly because I do that because otherwise if I left it to my wife, it would be a jumble mess and I couldn't find a knife that I wanted because there are four kinds of knives in there. <laughs> Thank you. So when we separate, we're creating what? <laughs> Order. Uh, I may not yet be a man after God's own heart, but God certainly is a God after my own heart. <laughs> right? God likes order. In fact, we began thinking about the universe or the created world as tohu velohu, Formless and empty and wasteland, chaotic. And what does God do with that? Order. Each according to its kind. Even the structure, the very literary structure of chapter one is about order. Day one, day two, day three, day four. Each one begins, Vayomer Elohim, Vayomer Elohim, Vayomer Elohim. And then God said, and then God said, and then God said, let there be this, let there be this, let there be that, let there be this. You can actually make a chart out of Genesis 1 that nerds and OCD people would love. <laughs> right? Like, whoa, that's cool. Um, so remember words and phrases mean something in context? In the context of Canaanite mythology, which is about chaos and violence, what do we have? God of order. So now we're going back to this question. Who is this God? We worship this God, Yahweh, who is our Elohim. Who is this God? When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul is arguing for orderly service, orderly worship, because God is a God of order, he's not making that up, because that's what he likes. He says, no, 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 no. Our theology, which comes directly from the Bible, Paul is saying, we cannot be chaotic people. Chaos is antithesis to this divine being that we worship. So when we talk about the theology of Genesis, that's a fancy word, theology, but what we're, what we're saying is, what is the author most concerned about? It saddens me sometimes. I mean, we just went through a very divisive time in our political life, but what saddens me most is when people who love God and are called to love one another, separate ourselves from each other. Especially over ideas that it would, at best would be secondary ideas, not primary ideas of God. So primary ideas of God include things like our God is a God of order, that our God is creator God, yes, absolutely. But when Christians fight and argue about how, when, what, when the text is so clearly focused on God separating, 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 and then from this point on, when like, life gets on the planet, on earth, on the land, I should say, it's about every one of them according to its kind, it's orderly, and that is good according to God. So 
the reason Dan mentioned I didn't want to get into that argument or debate about creationism versus evolution and those things because I think then we're doing something that doesn't show the world that we love one another. Now, we can have a conversation about that in calm, uh, unified way that say, you know, what is the Bible really saying? Can we, can we um, discuss in harmony and, and in mutual respect? Um, but I've, I've heard two Christians go at it about Genesis 1 and call the other person unbeliever because of their disagreement on this. And it's, it's, it's a deeply saddening uh, moment whenever I witness that. Um, because beyond God being, and we'll see this in through in Genesis, Genesis, throughout Genesis, beyond being a God of order, that's about God the creator. God the creator is God of order. The God, the God the creator that we worship is a God of relationship. The first thing God does to Adam, uh, human, humanity, is to bless it. And to have a conversation with us. God is a relational being in, in Genesis. Um, do we have five minutes? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to get through day, day five. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're at 12, right? Okay. Uh, and so the earth, so God said to earth, hey, bring this forth. And so the earth brought forth uh, sprouting green things with seeds in it and to its according to its kind and fruit trees and, uh, again, had, had seeds in it. According to its kind, again, as if you, you don't want to miss that one, and God called, uh, I mean, sorry, God saw that it was good. 13. There was evening. There was, so again, the word is is not weak in Hebrew. So evening existed, morning existed, day three. Four, uh, 14. So those short verses about evening and morning, we can kind of move beyond because it'll repeat over and over the same exact way. Just like each day begins exactly the same way every day, each day ends the same way. Again, order. Just meticulous OCD level order. Um, so, uh, 14. And God said, let, light, that, let there be lights, or let lights be, or thing that causes light. Often, when this is outside Genesis, this word gets translated as lamp. So light is the thing that we see. The thing that causes light is this other word, and this is lamp, or light-causing thing. So let there be lights in the rakia of the Shemaim, this dome of the heavens, uh, to separate again, to separate uh, from day, for day from, from night, and let them be as signs for seasons and days and years. So the first reason for the lights uh, is, I, find, I always find it interesting. The, the author thought the first reason for these lights being there is for us to keep time. Uh, without a calendar or our smartphones or watches or clocks, how do they keep time? Day one. Look at that, another day. <laughs> uh, so that's the first reason. The second reason in verse, four, verse 15, uh, and let them be lights uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the dome of the heaven to, be, to cause light upon the earth, and it was so. So then now the earth receives this light, and so that's the second purpose in verse 16. Uh, 15, sorry. 16. Again, God does something. And God makes the, uh, the two 
great lights. The, more, uh, the greater light to govern the day and the smaller light to govern the night. And as, as well as the stars. So the stars are not being governed. God made those things as well, is what this author is saying. The word there for govern or rule or something like that, you might see in your translation is mashal. Mashal is not to govern as king uh, or rule as king. That's malach, 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 king. And, uh, oh, interference. So to govern as king, that word doesn't occur in Genesis 1 or 2 at all. Even us, uh, when human, humanity is created, the words that occur, there are two other words, we'll talk about that. Those two other words are still not malach. So there's only one king in Genesis, Elohim. There are no other kings. Seven, uh, 17. And God gave them or set them uh, in the, the dome of the heavens to be light upon the earth. So second purpose is, is explicitly given there. 18. All right, we're gonna see if we can make it through it, 19. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, are we at yeah, 18? To govern the day and, to, and the night. Um, to again separate between the light and the darkness and God saw that it was good. Are you getting tired of hearing the word separate? <laughs> the author is making uh, the point clear. Separation, separation, separation. And it was morning, I'm sorry, it was evening, it was morning, and uh, the fourth day. I think that's about as, weak, as far as we can get. Uh, <coughs> next week, we'll start on verse 20. If you, if you don't mind reminding me, Dan, that'd be great. Thank you. Thank you again for coming, and thanks for having me.